Good morning. Welcome to uh, Lakewood Bible Chapel. Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 54 and stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's Word. O God, save me by your name and render justice to me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and ruthless men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is among those who sustain my soul. He will return the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your truth. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all distress, and my eye has looked in triumph upon my enemies. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Psalm 54 is a psalm written by David, and it was written around the same time that he wrote Psalm 52. In Psalm 52, David came to the city of Nob and sought refuge from Saul and Saul's men in the temple where Ahimelech helped David and David's men. In 1 Samuel 22, we learn about a man named Doeg who betrayed David and Ahimelech to Saul. And Saul, along with this wicked man Doeg, had not only Ahimelech murdered, but also Ahimelech's family along with the other 85 priests and their wives and their children. In our psalm this morning, we see the following heading, For the choir director, with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? The historical context of our psalm picks up where Psalm 52 leaves off in 1 Samuel 22. We learn in 1 Samuel 23, that the Philistines were attacking the Jewish town of Keilah. David was made aware of this and inquired of the Lord as to whether or not he should defend this town, and the Lord gave him permission to do so. So David and his men went to Keilah and saved his kinsmen there from the Philistines. While all of this was happening, Saul learned that David had come to Keilah, and so Saul sent his men to try and take this city with David still inside. In the meantime, a man named Abitar had escaped the massacre at Nob and came to David with an ephod, which David used to inquire of the Lord as to whether or not the people of Keilah would give him over to Saul in order to save themselves, and the Lord revealed that they would indeed do this. So David and his men, about 600 of them, left Keilah and were encamped in the wilderness of Ziph. It was here that David was betrayed by the Ziphites. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 23. Let's read verses 19 to 20, which give us a little bit of an insight as to what's going on here. Verses 19 to 20 say the following, Then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds of Horesh 
on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon. So now, O king, according to all the desire of your soul to come down, come down here, and our part shall be to surrender him into, your, into the king's hand. Here's the thing. This was not the only time that the Ziphites betrayed David to Saul. Two chapters later, David sneaks into Saul's camp and takes Saul's spear while he and his men were sleeping. The reason Saul's men were encamped there was because the Ziphites had again gone to Saul and told him where David was. We learn this from 1 Samuel 26.1, which says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon? So it is in the context of these events, it is in the context of these hardships that we come to our text this morning in Psalm 54. Take a look at the first point in your outline, David's petition. Verses 1 to 3 read, O God, save me by your name and render justice to me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. And ruthless men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. In this time of great distress, David prayed. His circumstances were overwhelming. He was being pursued by Saul's men, which numbered 3,000. And they all wanted to kill him. And David only had 600 men. And he only had 600 men with him to defend himself. The odds from a worldly perspective seemed too great to bear, and so David prayed. Let me just say, as a Christian, this is the right thing to do. As the old hymn goes, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. We should always turn to the Lord in the difficult circumstances in our lives. And this seems obvious, but this is not always the disposition of our hearts. For example, in 2 Chronicles, we learn of a man, a king of Judah named Asa. Asa, for the most part, was a good king. In the early years of his 40-year reign as king of Judah, Zerah the Ethiopian attacked Asa. Here's what we read of this account in 2 Chronicles 14. Starting in verse 8, we read the following. Now Asa had a military force of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were mighty men of valor. Then Zerah the Ethiopian went out against them with a military force of 1 million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Mereshash. So Asa went out to meet him, and they arranged themselves for battle in the valley of Zephathah at Maresha. So we see that Asa has a little over half a million men, mighty men of valor. But Zerah the Ethiopian had twice as many men as Asa, and he also had 300 chariots. Asa was outnumbered, much like David was. And much like David, Asa, in the midst of these distressing and overwhelming circumstances, called upon Yahweh. Asa says the following to Yahweh in verse 11, Yahweh, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between those of abundant power and those who have no power. So help us, 
O Yahweh, our God, for we lean on you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Yahweh, you are our God. Let not mortal man prevail against you. This is the same heart that we see in David in our psalm this morning. Taking what seems to be an impossible situation before the God who specializes in impossible situations. I think it's worth noting what God does in response to Asa's dependence on him. Look at verse 12. So Yahweh smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Now, I bring up Asa because he didn't continue in his faithful dependence on the Lord. Instead, in the latter years of his reign, he turned to mere men for his salvation instead of continuing to rely on the Lord. We read the following in 2 Chronicles 16, verses 2 to 4. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of Yahweh and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa. And sent the commanders of his military forces against the cities of Israel, and they struck down Ejon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And what was God's response to Asa? Take a look at verses 7 to 9. Now at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have leaned on the king of Aram... And have not leaned on Yahweh your God. Therefore, the military force of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim a vast military force with an exceedingly vast number of chariots and horsemen? Yet because you leaned on Yahweh, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to him. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. I mention this because I want to highlight the first part of verse 9. Even though Asa failed to depend on the Lord in the latter years of his life, we gain great insight into God's concern for us. Let's read the first part of verse 9 again. For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is wholly devoted to Him. Brothers and sisters, this is why we as believers can confidently go to the Lord in prayer. This is why David, in the midst of his overwhelming circumstances, goes to his God in prayer. You guys, Yahweh is scouring the earth to find those who are His to strongly support us. And let me just say, as he is looking for those that need help, he always finds us. Be like David, be like Asa in his earlier years, who leaned hard on God in the difficulties of their lives. Now, let's take a look at what David says in his prayer, as he's being pursued by Saul after being betrayed by the Ziphites. Look at verse 1. David says the following, "'O God, save me by your name and render justice to me by your might.'" Here we see David turning in total dependence on the Lord for his salvation. Oh God, save me. Notice the basis upon which he makes this appeal. 
Oh God, save me by your name. He doesn't just cry out, save me, but appeals to the name of God as the grounds for his salvation. Previously in Psalm 52, we see David speak of the name of God in a similar way. We read the following in Psalm 52, verse 9. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it, and I will hope in your name, for it is good in the presence of your holy ones. Here, David says he will hope in God's name. And Chris, in his sermon last Sunday, explained that this name referred to the character of God. David hoped in God because of who God is, because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, because of his sovereign power over all things. He hoped in God because of his mercy, his grace, and his love. He hoped in God because of God's truth and God's might and God's justice. We see something very similar in our text this morning. We see David appeal specifically to the might, the justice, and the truth of God in the second half of verses 1 and 5. Verse 1, and render justice to me by your might. And verse 5, destroy them in your truth. Nothing has changed with regard to what David hoped in from Psalm 52 to Psalm 54. He still hopes in the same God. A God who is unchanging in all of his ways, and thus he appeals to the name of the unchanging God. David appeals to the perfect character and nature of God in this time of difficulty and trial. He is appealing to Yahweh, the I am, the one who was and is and is to come. And if we think about this with regard to ourselves, there is no better reason to hope in and rely on God For it is his character that makes God worthy of our trust and reliance. When people mock Christians for having faith and hope in God, when atheists and others suggest that they can't believe in a God that they can't understand, I say that is ridiculous. I mean, what's the point in believing in a God that you can completely explain? This would mean that you could completely understand God. On the contrary, I am perfectly fine with God being beyond my understanding and explanation. For if I could completely understand all the manifold aspects of His perfect character, then that would imply that God is no greater than I, that God was no more powerful or wise than I. That would imply that in the circumstances similar to what David is facing, God couldn't help him. That David would have to resort to his own strength, his own wisdom, and his own power to solve this impossible problem. God forbid. I will happily love, serve, worship, and rely upon the one true God. The God who is infinitely beyond my understanding and thus perfectly capable of dealing with the situations of life that are completely beyond me. I will happily rely upon him in all things. Now, let's realize here that David has been betrayed by these Ziphites and that Saul is pursuing David like he's some sort of criminal, like he's a fugitive on the run. And all of this is unjust because David is guilty of no wrong. In fact, time and time again, David demonstrates his innocence with regard to Saul. For example, in 1 Samuel 24, just after the Ziphites betrayed David's location to Saul the first time, 
David has an opportunity to actually kill Saul, and he doesn't do it. Most of us are familiar with the scene. Saul is searching for David in the wilderness of Engedi and came upon a, ca- a cave, which he entered. Unbeknownst to Saul, David and his men were in the recesses of this cave, and David managed to sneak up on Saul, and in that moment, instead of killing him, he cut a piece of the hem of his garment and then slipped away. This is what David says about that moment. Far be it from me because of Yahweh that I should do this thing to my Lord, the anointed of Yahweh, to send forth my hand against him, since he is the anointed of Yahweh. This isn't the only example of David's innocence. The point is that Saul and the Ziphites' pursuit and treatment of David was completely unjust, and David did not take this into his own hands. He could have so easily killed Saul multiple times, and he didn't. Why? Well, as we've just seen in 1 Samuel 24, David did not want to lay a hand on God's anointed. But underpinning this, David also knew that every wrong that had been committed against him would be made right by his Lord. He would much rather that God take justice into his own hands than David be the one to enact justice for these wrongs committed against him. There's a great lesson here for our own lives. And I think Paul explains this perfectly in Romans 12, 17 to 19, which reads, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved, instead leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, when I look at our godless culture, and their insatiable desire for justice, the recent championing of this notion of social justice. I can understand why they are so committed to this. I can understand why this seems to be the, one of the creeds of their secular religion. They don't follow God. They don't serve Yahweh. Rather, they serve themselves. And so for them, they have no God to turn to for final, complete, and perfect justice like we do. In their worldview, if they go, if they're going to ever see justice for the wrongs that have been committed against them, they're going to have to take it for themselves. Here's the problem they're finite, they're sinful, imperfect people, just like we are apart from Christ. And so the taking of justice by such inadequate people will always be done in such a way that is unjust. And here's the thing we as Christians, we who are Christ's, We who live our lives according to the word of God should have a completely different approach to justice because vengeance is the Lord's. To take on this burden of social justice is to approach the problems of this world as an atheist does. It's also important for me to make it clear that I am not saying that if we see a situation where we can help the helpless or work to make right a wrong that has been committed that we shouldn't do that. If that was the case, then there'd be no point in fighting against abortion to save the unborn. I'm just saying that a Christian knows that any kind of justice accomplished on this earth will only be made fully right when God makes every wrong right in eternity. This should give us a humble, healthy, and balanced way of approaching justice in this life. And I think we've seen that this is something that the world, apart from Christ, is totally incapable of. Only God, in His perfect character, can enact justice perfectly. 
Only God can be perfect in acting justice and also completely perfect in showing mercy. This is something that is impossible for even the most upstanding among us. No judge can show any ounce of mercy towards a convicted man and at the same time faithfully uphold justice as he is supposed to do. The only way for a mere man to do this is to either compromise justice for the sake of showing mercy or compromise mercy for the sake of upholding justice. But this is not the case with God, and this is the beauty of substitutionary atonement. We are sinners who sin, and God rightly condemns us to eternal punishment because of this, and He is perfectly just in doing so. But God also sent His Son to die for the sins of the elect, and in stepping in as the substitute sacrifice for our sin, for the sin of His people, God maintains His perfect justice in the punishment of our sin at the cross of Christ. And at the very same time, He demonstrates complete and perfect mercy. For we do not deserve this amazing gift of salvation for our sin, purchased by Christ at the cross that we deserve to die on. It's in this way, through Christ's substitutionary atonement, that God maintains His perfect justice and His perfect mercy. And this is the character that David is appealing to. This is the name that David refers to here in our psalm this morning. Believer, whose name do you call upon when you face the trials of life? I exhort you in light of such an amazing and glorious God, do not neglect to call upon the name of the Lord. And in doing so, I guarantee you, your anxieties will vanish like a vapor and you will truly experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. For those of you who are with us this morning that have not yet believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior, who do you turn to when you face the difficulties of life that are beyond yourself? Well, let me implore you to consider Jesus Christ. Confess, turn from and forsake your sin. Place it on Christ and rest in the knowledge that His death burial, and resurrection have sufficiently dealt with your sin before the wrath of God. Stop trying to make your own way to God and instead recognize that He has come to you this morning right here and right now. I encourage you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to trust Him. Trust Him as your Lord and as your Savior for your salvation. And if you do so, you also will be able to turn to God just as David has in our text this morning. So, in David's distress, he turned to God for salvation. What does he say next? Turn your attention to verses 2 and 3, which read, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me, and ruthless men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Say law. Here we see David appeal to God for God to hear his prayer. Isn't it an amazing thing that God hears our prayers at all? When I think about it, it reminds me of David's words in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, which say, When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we that God remembers us and cares for us? And yet He does. There are numerous verses throughout the Bible that affirm the truth 
that God hears our prayers. One of those verses can be found in Psalm 66, where we see the psalmist say the following in verse 19, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. But if you turn your attention back one verse, the psalmist acknowledges something that is also important for us to remember. Verse 18 says, If I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And so we see David plea for God to hear him. And knowing that God does hear our prayers, that he is even eager to hear our prayers, let us also soberly examine our own lives. Let us examine our own hearts and ask, do I see wickedness in my heart? Let us take this seriously and ask God to search our hearts and see if there be any sin within us, but don't stop there. Also ask God to root out that sin and lead you in the way everlasting. Follow David's example in Psalm 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And when you have dealt with the wickedness in your heart by taking it to the foot of the cross where it was paid for, when you have confessed and repented of previously unrepentant sin, then do as David does in our psalm this morning. Confidently plead with God to hear your prayers, and He will hear them. He, Yahweh, will move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support you, whose heart is wholly devoted to Him. David continues in his prayer to the Lord, saying, For strangers have risen against me, and ruthless men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. These Ziphites, while they were fellow countrymen of David's, David didn't know them personally. These strangers to David had risen against him and betrayed his location to Saul. Either Saul and his men or the Ziphites or both could be who David refers to when he describes these men as ruthless men that have sought his life. He describes these men as men who have not seen set as men who have not set God before them. This is the reason David gives for why these men have risen against him, why, these, why they are ruthless and why they have sought his life. They have not set God before them. What David is saying to God about these men is that they have acted apart from God and his commands in their unjust pursuit of his life. Charles Spurgeon says the following about these men. They had no more regard for right and justice than if they knew no God or cared for none. Had they regarded God, they would not have betrayed the innocent to be hunted down like a poor, harmless stag. David felt that atheism lay at the bottom of the enmity which pursued him. I think that it goes without saying that in our day and age, that in our secular, godless culture, we are also dealing with men who have no regard for what is right. We are dealing with leaders who have no regard for true justice. We are dealing with people who know no God and have no care of God. We are dealing with men who have not set God before them. And so the question is, how did David handle such men, men that have not set God before them? Well, this is what the rest of the psalm is about. And let me give you a little preview. David didn't deal with these men by attacking and going after them. On the contrary, David dealt with his own heart before the Lord in these matters, and that changed everything for him. With this in mind, let's turn our attention to the second point in our outline, David's helper. At the end of verse 3, we see the word Selah. 
David had presented his plea to the Lord regarding his desperate circumstances and then pauses and meditates. Verse 4 reveals to us the fruit of this meditation. Verse 4 reads, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is among those who sustain my soul. Let me read that again. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is among those who sustain my soul. One commentator says the following about this point in the psalm. If in verses 1 to 3, David was bringing himself and then his enemies to God's attention, he now brings God before his own attention. Brothers and sisters, when you are facing trials, when you are in those difficult circumstances that seem like you're always being pushed down, that seem like you're always drowning and unable to escape, when you're dealing with things that seem impossible to overcome, Bring yourself to God's attention. Do that. Tell the Lord what is going on. But be sure to bring God before your own attention as well. In the face of your trial, follow David's example revealed to us by this single word, Selah. Break away from the frantic nature of the moment and set your eyes on Christ. Recalibrate your mind and your heart to Him. And let him be the waypoint in the chaos of your circumstances. For the way that you endure such things is with your eyes on Christ and not on your circumstances. Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here in Philippians, Paul is exhorting us to bring ourselves and our circumstances to God's attention. Let your requests be made known to God. But then in verse 7, Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here he is exhorting us to bring God before our own attention. When you put God before you, when you put His awesome character before you, when you put His works of majesty before you, when you remember His promises to you, when you trust God, for He is worthy of such trust, when you put that great God who said, let there be, and creation obeyed, when you put that God, the one true and living God before you, His peace, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. You will no longer be anxious because you have chosen to set God before you, because you have remembered Him, and you have truly put your trust in Him. This is exactly what David does. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is among those who sustain my soul. He has set God before him, and this changes everything. Now, David was with, his, was, with, was with 600 of his mighty men, men that were his helpers, but not in the ultimate sense. Those men were with David, but David's focus and his hope rests in the fact that the Lord is among those who sustains his soul. David knew that God was his only true helper. And while these mighty men were instruments used by God to help David, it is only God who truly sustains David's soul. 
God didn't need these men in order to help David, and David knows this. Here's the thing, if we are in Christ, if we trust Christ for our salvation, how much more can we trust Him and Him alone in the difficult circumstances of our lives? Which one is greater and harder to accomplish, our salvation or handling whatever circumstances we are facing? We trust Him for the harder thing, our salvation. Why do we struggle so much to trust Him with the trials that we are going through? If God is our helper and the sustainer of our soul with regard to our sin, how much more will He help us and sustain us when we face things that are beyond us? If our faith is saving faith, then our trust should all the more rest in Christ for the outcome of those hardships that we are going through. May the Lord open our eyes to see that He is worthy of our trust in all the circumstances of our lives. Now, turning our attention to verse 5, we see David say the following, He will return the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your truth. Notice that David's problem hasn't yet been resolved. Instead, what we see is that David, in the midst of the trial, is so convinced of God as his helper and the sustainer of his soul that he has complete confidence that God will deal with these evil, ruthless men. More specifically, that the evil that these men have enacted against David will be turned around by God on themselves. This is the ultimate consequence of sin and wickedness. It always, in the end, turns on those who are sinful and wicked. Proverbs 1, 15 to 19 says the following, My son, do not walk in the way with them. Withhold your feet from their pathway, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. For it is no use that a net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the paths of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the true justice of God, that sinners suffer the fruit and consequences of their own sin. These men who had not placed God before them, who have not valued His commands, who have not valued His wisdom, who have not trusted in His promises, who have not valued His truth, these men will be destroyed when they come face to face with that very same truth that they have rejected. And so now that David has placed God before his own detention, now that David has established confidence that God will act as his helper, and that God is the sustainer of his soul, we see the third point of our outline, David's response. That David responds to these things with thankful worship. Verses 6 and 7 read as follows, With a freewill offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all distress, and my eye has looked in triumph Upon my enemies. James Montgomery Boyce provides the following commentary about these verses. This is a thank offering promised to God in advance of his deliverance on the grounds of his firm confidence that God would indeed deliver him. How does he know God will do it? It is because of who God is. God is my help. And because God has delivered him in the past. David may not have begun this psalm with confidence. But having brought his anxieties to God and having reminded himself of who God is, 
he finds, as he did in so many other psalms, that he is restored to a quiet trust and confidence in God by the end of it. Notice the way that David gives thanks here in verse 6. David says, I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. Does this sound familiar? Remember verse 1? O God, save me by your name. Now we finally see the full meaning of David's appeal to the name of God in verse 1. He is in fact appealing to Yahweh. This is the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3, 13 to 14 reads as follows. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. James Montgomery Boyce again helps us with an explanation of the meaning of the name Yahweh, and he uses words put better than I ever could. He says regarding the name of Yahweh, it reveals God as the eternal present, as the one who has always existed and who will always exist, the unchangeable God. Eternal existence also implies self-existence and self-sufficiency. Self-existence means that God has no origins and is therefore answerable to no one. Self-sufficiency means that God depends on no one and therefore has no needs. God helps those who call on Him but needs no help Himself. This is the God that David serves, the God that David appeals to for his help, the God that David longs to be heard by, the God that David presents his troubles to, the God that is David's helper and the sustainer of David's soul. And now this is the God that David worships and gives thanks to in appreciation or anticipation of God's salvation from the trouble that lies before David. Why does David give thanks to the name of Yahweh? Look back at verse 6 again. I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. God's name, Yahweh, God's character, and all that comes from it in His word, in His promises, in His works, is good. And we know this from our recent time in Genesis, don't we? Throughout the creation account, God performs awesome, majestic works where He speaks creation into existence from nothing. And throughout the creation account, as well as in His final assessment, God says, it is good. God declares creation good because it reflected, at least in part, the majesty, wisdom, and power of God. The point is this, that from the very beginning... When God spoke the universe into existence until right now, this very moment where we are sitting together, worshiping God this morning, He hasn't changed. He has always been good. He's good right now, and He will always be good. And so David rests in the knowledge of this. He rests in the knowledge that God is good. And therefore, he gives thanks to this good name of Yahweh, which is the foundation of his peace in the midst of his distress. And then in verse 7, David gives further explanation for his thankful worship when he says, For he has delivered me from all distress. 
And my eye has looked in triumph upon my enemies. God's done it before. This isn't David's first rodeo. He knows how this works. He's seen God's hand take care of business on his behalf. But this is of no assurance at all unless David can know that God will do the same in this current situation. So how does he know that God will deliver him this time? Because as we've just learned, the goodness of the name, the goodness of Yahweh reveals to us the unchanging nature of the God that we serve. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Yahweh, from before creation to this very moment, has always been good. And in this goodness, he has always delivered David from all distress. And so David knows that God will do it again, just like he always has. Let me ask you, how do you approach the trials and difficulties that life brings? Do you realize that God in his goodness not only will rescue David from his trial, but he will rescue you from your trial as well? Now, I want to wrap things up with a final point of clarification, which I think is necessary to help us strike a healthy balance in our understanding and application of this passage this morning. David's peace in the midst of this unresolved trial does not rest in his expectation that it will turn out exactly how he wants it to. This is so important. Please pay attention. David knows that God will rescue him, but he has no idea what that will look like. David has peace here because he rests in and trusts that however God chooses to rescue him is what's best for David and is also what will glorify God the most. A lot of the time, the way we think things should go, the way we hope they will go, is different than the way that they actually go. This does not mean that God has stopped being our helper. It just means the expectation we had for our circumstances was not aligned with God's perfect will for our lives. It is tempting for us to seek to find peace in the hope of our own desired outcome. But this is a very unstable foundation for our peace. Because that desired outcome is usually very easily threatened by changing circumstances. But if our peace rests in and trusts God for whatever outcome He desires, if our peace is not rooted in what we want, but instead is rooted in the unchanging and good name of Yahweh, then our peace will be unwavering. This kind of peace cannot be shaken, even in the face of what we may fear the most in our flesh. Like the hymn says, When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. My prayer for my own life and for all of you is that we are all able to come to that place where we trust God in this way. Where we trust God like David does when men are pursuing him and seeking his life. The fact is, 
There is no better way to walk through the difficulties of life than being a people who are at rest in the face of that which from the outside may seem to threaten us the most, but we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul expresses this sentiment at the end of Romans 8 when he says the following, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Things may not turn out the way we want. But if your trust is in the name of Yahweh, then you will be a person filled with joy. You will be a person who is anxious for nothing. You will be a person who has the peace of God, the incomprehensible peace of God. You will be a person whose heart and mind is guarded in Christ Jesus. And all of this will be true for you no matter what is going on around you. Do you want to be a people like this? I pray you do. I know that I do. And if you do, then fight like Jacob did with the Father to place your trust in the good, unchanging name of Yahweh. Amen? Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to trust you in this way. Lord, help us to see you for who you really are. Change our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.